Bases loaded and one out. Oh, oh my God. Deep to right field. Way up there and way out of here. Second deck walk off home run. Grand slam. Hello and welcome in everybody to episode 131 of the Bases Loaded Fantasy Baseball Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Curland. You can follow me on Twitter at Mike underscore Curlin. And tonight we are talking early round values. But I didn't come alone. I brought the host of the Fantasy Baseball Today podcast, a, trip, a contributor to the Fantasy Football Today team, which no one cares about football right now. It's a mess. <laughs> he writes for CBS Fantasy Sports. He was a top 10 fantasy baseball ranker in 2018 and 2019, and he takes part in Top Wars head-to-head. This is the one, the only Frank Stample of CBS. You can follow him on Twitter at Roto underscore Frank. Frank, thanks for coming on, man. Mike, thank you for that fantastic introduction. You're too kind. Uh, thanks for having me, man. Listen, man, I got to try to keep up with you as a host, you know, because we were talking about this and you weren't much of a host before CBS, but you've done a great job since. And I'm just trying to return the favor since, you know, you were kind enough to bring me on CBS. I figured I'd bring you back to, you know, almost like the underground scene of like the rap game in the 90s, like underground radio. That's what this independent pods are, man. I appreciate that. Man. And you're right. Look, I was not much of a host before I joined uh, Fantasy Baseball Today over at CBSSports.com. And they're like, yeah, just fill in for Adam Azer, who's the best ever at doing it. So I'm trying. A lot of people have been very welcoming to me over in the Fantasy Baseball Today in, in, for that podcast and in that uh, just community. So... It's been very welcoming, and thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate it. No, it's always – I'm just glad you had time to come here because I know you're a busy man. Football's on. There's a fo- there's football on the Tuesday night. Like, what the heck is going on? I don't know. But we are – like I said, we are going to talk uh, some early-round values, but I actually had someone give me some feedback behind the scenes. They are not called values yet. We can't actually say that they are a value until the season is played. So there are terms like acquisition costs and perceived values when I come up with because we look at them and we see the potential for value. We see the uh, perceived value at their draft costs, but we don't know that they're values yet because they haven't played a single game. And I was like, you have a point, but I'm still going to call them values. (laughs) It's just easier that way. No, I agree with that too. I don't think you have to overthink it. The original point you made is correct. They're not values until the season plays out and we know what happens. You could think someone is a value. They get hurt the first game of the season. They're out for the rest of the year. All right, they're not a value. But uh, what, I, what I associate value with is, I mean, we do this year over year. And heading into 2020, I loved guys like Manny Machado, Jose Abreu, just criminally disrespected in my opinion. And that was because they were going later than they had been going in years past. And uh, you'll see with a lot of the players that I'm going to bring up later on, uh, for me, these players are values because they were going much, much earlier in years past compared to where they're going heading into 2021. Yeah, and that's the big thing is I wanted to highlight early round values because everyone's so big on looking for the sleepers, looking for those late round values, guys that you just grab for free. But I think building a foundation based on values is actually a good way to go too because if you can attack these market inefficiencies early on, you get a kind of a leg up on the competition, in my opinion. But before we get into that, we also have, so we have some news and notes. We have to catch up on here, which again, I'm sure you talked about today. So you'll probably be well, re- relatively, or at least over the last few days on your podcast. So you'll probably be relatively comfortable talking about these. But I lied. I do have one more thing. So I came up with this thing, this, this, this term, if you will. And I called it my Goldilocks players. And that could be a reference back to when Goldschmidt was, you know, he was a lock. And I get the reference there. But I looked at it like this. I'm like, there's a lot of players just at ADP. I like their costs. Just these, they're, they're locks for your team. You know, they're, they're solid values. The ADP is not too high, not too low, just right. So that's why I thought of Goldilocks. I'm like, it's a terrible pun, but I have kids and it's just 
so up my alley. I love bad jokes, and that's a, a terrible bad joke, but I'm owning it. I want your honest opinion on the idea of Goldilocks. I like it. And look, <laughs> bad joke, you've got the kids. I don't have kids yet. I don't know if it's ever going to happen. I, I kind of, I, I like, I enjoy the lifestyle of, you know, don't, <laughs> don't really have much responsibility outside of fantasy sports for now. We'll see what happens. But I like it, man. Everyone has their locks. I brought up a few names that I liked. And you know, some of the players that we, we, we will talk about later on, I've done three drafts that will play out. Two draft champions, one of them still going on, and uh, a basketball draft that's still going on. And a few of these players I already have in multiple leagues. So I am finding myself gravitating towards these plays, uh, players already. And they are nearly locks, as you would like to call them, a Goldilocks. So I'm, I'm cool with it, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm, see, I'm glad I have one person on my side, but I got torn apart. There was people who liked the idea of what I was trying to go for, just hated the name. I used to call those guys roster stabilizers and other obvious names that just aren't as fun for me. So now I'm like, now I got to I have to go do a whole podcast episode on this. I have to write up a couple articles now. I know I have to own it and see where it goes. If it goes nowhere, I'm cool with that. But I thought I'd bring it up to you, and I, I'm glad you liked it. I'm glad someone did. But let's get to these news and notes. The White Sox are making a splash. Well, kind of. They made a really big splash, and they made an interesting one we'll talk about. But the Lance Lynn trade, obviously bringing him over for Dane Dunning and Adam Eaton, to us, uh, signing him to a one-year deal. What are your overall thoughts on Lance Lynn? We'll start with him over there um, for the White Sox. Yeah, for so I have him ranked as a top 20 starting pitcher, but I don't really feel great about it for some reason. There – there's, there are good things and there are bad things with Lance Lynn. Starting off with the good things, he's a workhorse. He went at least five innings in all 13 of his starts in this season. He went at least six in 11 of 13. He just led all starting pitchers with 84 innings. So in a season in 2021 where we don't really know what the projected workloads are going to be for various starting pitchers, Lance Lynn, I think, is someone that you could pencil in for at least 180, and he's more than likely going to uh, approach 200 or even exceed that. So I think that is one of the things, uh, one of the positives for him. And, of course, joining the White Sox, he now has Yasmani Grandal as his catcher, who is an excellent framer, uh, can help him steal some strikes as well. The negative, he had an XFIP that was a full run higher than his ERA. He had a 3.32 ERA. He had a 4.34 XFIP. And his fly ball rate was a career high 42%. So he just gave up the most fly balls of his career. And now he's moving over to guaranteed rate field in Chicago, which is which was seventh in home run park factors, according to ESPN this past season, uh, compared to 22nd in globe life field. So it is a negative park shift for him, but he gets Grandal. He's a workhorse. I just, I don't think I'm going to find myself drafting him very much. It just, it seems like there's too much that can go wrong at his cost, which Right now is what a top sixty pick. Yeah, I, I just I can't all. really get behind it. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of torn because you mentioned the pro. There's pros and cons. The move and apparently the hitters were saying that you know te- the new Texas ballpark was more of a hitters park or sorry pitchers park last year, mm-hmm. but now he gets to face really terrible offenses like the Indians <laughs> and the Tigers. But the sure. Royal the Royals are sneaky good. You know the Royals have that sneaky little fun offense to follow. They added Carlos Santana, which we know what he is, so it's like I didn't add him to the show notes because I think it's an interesting move for him. He gets a better offense, a worse ballpark type of deal, but he is what he is, so I didn't think much to add on him. But overall, I think the pros and cons kind of weigh themselves out for Lance Lynn and kind of just – I don't know. It's pretty much a linear move in terms of fantasy, in my opinion. But I, I really do like 
the Grandall call. I think that's going to have a lot more effect on this team than we were on, not on this team. Well, yeah, on the team, but on Lance Lynn than we think, but Adam Eaton, I got some, I got, I got some flack on Twitter for this one today. Cause I thought it was a decent move. Nothing special, nothing like flashy, but they lacked that outfielder and he could fall back into a fourth outfield spot. I know the health concerns are in there. We know he can get on base. I think he's going to bat second probably, but I wish he wouldn't. Overall, what are your thoughts on Adam Eaton? Where do you think he belongs in that lineup? Yeah, he is probably going to bat second. He has a really good eye, and he does get on base. I mean, he's just kind of just like your prototypical veteran. So I think he'll give them good at-bats. And, of course, uh, he originally came up with the White Sox. So he uh, actually originally came up with the Diamondbacks, looking at it right now. But he played with the White Sox, so that's what I was thinking of. Um, yeah, I like. I, I didn't expect Madrigal to hit near the top of this lineup anyway. I figured they were probably going to use him as the nine hitter and kind of have those back-to-back leadoff hitters. It, it, it sucks probably more so for Yoan Moncada. Um, in terms of what I expect out of Eaton, maybe 10 homers, 10 to 15 steals, if he can manage to stay healthy. If Look, if he's batting second, he's going to score a lot of runs in this lineup. Uh, Jose Abreu, even if he takes a step back, I still think is an amazing bat. Of course, Eloy Jimenez in the middle there too. So if he can stay healthy, he could be a, a potential value here as a, I wouldn't want him for anything higher than like my fifth outfielder in a Roto league, yeah. probably more so as a bench bat. Yeah. He's always been like the 15, 15 type. If he stays healthy, he's more of a compiler than he is anything else. So I, I think he does have his fantasy usefulness. It's just a matter of which, uh, which Eaton do we get? Do we get what we saw last year, which was really bad? Or do we get what we saw in 2019, which was really solid, which was the 15, 15 guy. I don't know, man. I think he got a little unlucky last year. If you look at some of the numbers, some of the stuff just seems like it was kind of in line with previous years. But over 60 games, a compiler can take a hit, and it's more noticeable. Regardless, I guess a fifth outfielder type, I'm kind of right there with you. And on top of that, we're assuming he stays healthy, which is another big if. Uh, but going on going on another big – kind of another big trade. And the Reds are shedding some salary. Rysel Iglesias was traded over to the Angels. Lucas Sims and Amir Garrett are among the candidates to close. Are you more interested in one or the other, kind of just taking them both if you can at their prices? You drafted early. Have you ended up with any of them? Yeah, so I did a – I finished a draft champions last month, and I think I got Amir Garrett in like round 45 or something in a 15-team league, so he just went super late. And we don't know who's going to close for this team. My early lean is – Maybe they go towards Lucas Sims just because Amir Garrett is the only lefty that is projected in their bullpen as of now. They could still add someone. It's very early in the offseason. I was actually on the clock the other day when this happened, and I drafted Amir Garrett over Lucas Sims. And in hindsight, I'm, I'm not sure that that's what I would have done. They had such similar numbers this year. It was super weird. Amir Garrett, 245 ERA, 0.93 whip. Lucas Sims, 245 ERA, 0.94 whip. So they were... Very similar. I saw Eno Saris was talking up Lucas Sims on Twitter, and you look at his StatCast page, 99th percentile in fastball spin rate, 100th percentile in curve spin rate. Again, this is Lucas Sims, and he was great in the postseason too. Super small sample, but two and two-thirds hitless innings with five strikeouts against, obviously, the best competition uh, playing in the postseason. So I lean towards it'll be Lucas Sims. I wouldn't be surprising if they use like a matchup approach early on, but yeah, I think Sims is... Sims might be the guy. That's kind of where I'm leaning as well. And you hit me on the head. It's because of Amir Garrett being the lefty. I like. I do, but I do agree though. I think there's going to be a more of a platoon approach. Essentially, like it depends on the tough lefties, tough righties coming up type of deal. And then maybe one of them will cement their role. But and because it seems like the Reds want to actually have a closer. 
at least that's what they've employed over the last couple of years. But with this situation, we don't know yet. It's going to be interesting, though. And I would always go with the righty in that case. That's high goes to the righty. But speaking of a guy who I feel is like always a solid pitcher, nothing special, but Eduardo Rodriguez is expected to enter spring training without any restrictions. He was coming off of a 203-inning season in 2020. Obviously, he had pericarditis, I believe it was, secondary to, you know, after contracting COVID. And that shut him down for the year. We know he can pitch a solid 130, about 130 innings. I think he has to. T- I think you have to just assume he takes a step back on the inning count. But are you expecting more or less the same of, of Erod, or you kind of want to see what he's doing in terms of velocity first? There's just a lot to go on here. Go going on here, I should say. Yeah, so I wouldn't really be targeting him in early drafts, and I haven't yet. I want to see what he looks like in spring training, pitchers and catchers report sometime in February. See what the reports look like there uh, regarding e- Eduardo Rodriguez, but. He does do some nice things. The last time we saw him was back in 2019. He had that big second half, 2.95 ERA, uh, but it was it was with a 4.10 xFIP. So it uh, seems like he was lucky in that second half. But still, 11.7% swinging strike rate was a career high. 48.5% ground ball rate was a career high. So Eduardo Rodriguez was doing some things well. Um, he hasn't really been able to stay healthy for much of his career. But if I can wind up with him as a bench arm with upside to strike out over a batter per inning, then yeah, I, I would look at him, um, you know, as, as one of my bench starting pitchers with upside. I just, I want to see what he does first in, in spring training. And I meant, I meant to look it up earlier. I just thought of it. Obviously I had to look up his ADP. He's going at 252 right around. That's the ADP min pick of 114 crazy, but a max of 343, but he's going to Rodriguez draft himself or yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Right. I mean, you have John birdie going at 138. That's a whole, okay. This is a rabbit hole. We don't need to go down this, but I guess what I'm saying is that there's players like Michael Kopech, James Paxton, Nathan Eovaldi. These are the pitchers going right around him. And it kind of makes sense because there's a lot of question marks here. Kopech, you want to believe him, but he, he just took a year off, had to get his mental health and check and all that. You have Paxton who can't ever stay healthy, but we know the stuff is still potentially there. Mackenzie Gore going a little ahead of him. Another guy that we, I still don't understand why we didn't see him at all last year. I thought we'd see him for the playoff push, but we didn't even see him at all. So much unknown. Erod belongs there, but do you want him over any of those guys? Yeah. I mean, this is such a, this is just a weird (laughs) group of starting pitchers. James Paxton, free agent, have no idea what he has left in the tank. He's just been, so banged up. Strikeouts are there, but everything else has kind of fallen apart. Avaldi was solid this year, but another one that can't stay healthy. Shamanaya was really good down the stretch, but just pitching to contact doesn't get a lot of strikeouts. He Eduardo Rodriguez belongs in this range, and I think probably has similar upside to some of these other guys. I'm just scrolling for somebody who I would take over him. So, like, for example, we didn't talk much about Dane Dunning on the other side of that Lance Lynn trade, yeah. but he's going 35 picks after Eduardo Rodriguez, and I'm pretty I'm pretty interested in Dane Dunning. I like what I saw the first couple of starts. He tailed off a little bit. The swinging strikes took a little bit of a step back, but he was returning from Tommy John surgery, and this was you know, his first taste of the majors. And even with that, he still looked pretty good, and now he's moving over to a better pitcher's park. So Dane Dunning at that point is someone who I could actually see myself getting behind. I have a feeling he's probably going to move up like, 30 to 50 spots though which is going to put him right in the same range exactly yeah. <laughs> and I do I do like that call Dane Dunning is a perfect guy I'd rather have take the shot on him there too the only thing that's, that's where it gets me a little like worried about younger pitchers when they go to a new uh, team a new philosophy they might have a new pitching coach that tinkers with them a little bit 
that's what always scares me with them. But the upside is there. And I, I'd rather take the chance on the upside versus the known commodity of Erod. But even that known commodity comes with a risk this year because it's just coming off COVID and health concerns. And and on top of that, who knows what's going on with COVID? We don't know if the season – honestly, it probably feels like the season might get pushed back again a little bit. But another another topic for another day. I don't want to be pessimistic. I want to be positive. Don't say that, Mike. Don't say that, Mike. <laughs> Trust Come me. On. I want to be positive, but then you see what happened. Like tonight, I, I mean, again, I hate to talk football, but Des Bryant was on the field catching passes, hugging coaches. They played the game anyway, and it's like, and you know, there's gonna be an issue with this, and it's just like it's not going away. Yes, there's yeah. okay. Anyway, <laughs> you're right. I got to be positive. I just it's just frustrating because it's not being handled right now. I can't imagine being handled right by the MLB, the same MLB who you know I'm gonna skip a couple notes here. The same MLB that instructed clubs in a memo last week to proceed under the assumption that's in quotes that the designated hitter will not be used in the National League next year. The same MLB we expect to handle everything right is already doing something that majority of fans seem to really be like wanting with, with you know the designated hitter. They're saying nope, no designated hitter. I think they're playing hardball, but can you see this holding true? Rob Manfred is a monster, Mike. He, like, how much can one commissioner do wrong? And here we thought Roger Goodell. How many NFL references are we going to have in a baseball podcast? We thought Roger Goodell was bad, but, man, Rob Manfred has uh, just can't get out of his own way. This is a bargaining chip. That's all it is. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, using it, they're using the National League DH as a bargaining chip because they want expanded playoffs because, obviously, um, that helps the teams and that helps the owners. So, that's what they're holding out for. I guess, you know, they'll, they'll have some kind of bargaining back and forth here. But, uh, yeah, look, if we get to, like, February, March, and, you know, we still don't have anything, then, yeah, at that point, I think, kiss all your Dominic Smith shares goodbye, Mike. I already am. I already talked about how his ADP is too high for my, for my liking. But uh, I, and I love Dom Smith, too. It's just there's too much uncertainty right now with the situation. But you're a Yankee fan. You can't love Dom Smith. You're wearing a Yankees hat right now, like <laughs> – and speaking of Yankees, being that you are so good at just handling injuries over there in New York, um, Gio Oshella went underwent surgery on Friday to have bone chips removed from his right shoulder. He's expected to take three months to recover. Thoughts on? I'm just overall curious in your thoughts on taking a player coming off injuries, and I expect him to be healthy. He should be healthy coming into spring training, but is there any apprehension there? He has an ADP around 153. He's the 18th third baseman off the board. So the players behind him are like Brian Anderson, Josh Donaldson, which is kind of interesting, but has his own injury history. And the players of that type of, you know, of that, of that, whatever. I can't think of the word right now. Players like that. <laughs> Just overall, like, what's your idea of taking players coming off injury and then your thoughts on maybe the players behind him right now? Yeah, so I think, you know, every injury is treated differently. And uh, just a little bit of a tangent. Yeah, the Yankees, <laughs> past couple of seasons, the way that they have mishandled injuries, I just, I, I have no explanation. I don't know what they're doing. This is now two off-seasons in a row where they waited last off-season for James Paxton to have surgery. They waited for, we knew something was wrong with Severino all off-season, and they didn't do anything with it, and then they tried to just have him return and start pitching, and then he wound up having surgery. So this is a little bit of a Yankee rant, but the way that they have handled injuries the past couple of seasons, even with like Andujar bringing him back early in season, uh, same things with Stanton and Judge, and they're just, oh my, they're so bad at handling injuries. Why didn't Urshela just have the surgery the day after the season ended? I just, I have no idea. So now this puts him on track. It's like a three-month recovery for him to be back uh, at the beginning of March. This is now a risk-reward pick at 153 on NFBC ADP, where me personally, 
I will take Urshela once I see him in spring and he looks like himself. I need that assurance if I'm going to draft him this high because he is going right around guys like Cabrian Hayes, who I like quite a bit, and he's going 30 picks higher than a name you brought up in Josh Donaldson. Uh, and really for me, Hayes and Donaldson have been my fallback options at third base and corner infield uh, throughout early drafts that I've done. And third base is very top-heavy. It's not really like as great of a position as we've seen in the past. Uh, but I like targeting those third basemen late. And if Urshela, I need to see more from Urshela if I'm willing to take him in this spot. So uh, I guess I'm going to be waiting until March because thank you, Yankees. Yeah, and that's and you're assuming no any, any type of issues with the injury, any type of anything that pushes the timeline back. And again, it's Yankees. They might rush him back and he gets hurt, i.e. Stanton. I <laughs> I hope not, but well, the player Gio Urshela, he's been awesome, Mike. I, I yes. like watching him play. The transformation that he's gone through—it's absolutely legit. The line drive rate carried over year over year. Statcast loves this guy. His last 100, 162 games played, three twelve batting average, twenty seven homers, ninety two runs, one hundred and two RBI. Gio Urshela has been fantastic. I, I, there's nothing bad I could say about the guy, except for. I need to see him healthy. That's that's the last piece of the puzzle here, and I'll, I'll be waiting till March to do so. I do love how fantasy as a whole, the community, has pretty much put this big emphasis on health because I feel like players are getting hurt more and more every year, or maybe we're just becoming more and more aware of it. But we're willing to kind of pass on players and play it safe, which is just a smart thing to do because there always used to be this whole risk-reward with, 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 with injured players. And it's just – I feel like now that the whole industry as a whole is getting smarter with it, getting more comfortable – with with the analysis of it analysis of it that players are getting better too so it's like usually the adp wouldn't change and you'd still be seeing people take them here but i expect him to drop the, like you said 20 30 picks to be closer to that donaldson range and then that's when it becomes a harder decision because right now at 153 it's easy for me assuming he st- sticks there and by he i mean urshela assuming urshela sticks there at 153 i could pass knowing that he might not be ready for spring training or at least part of spring training but if he falls to 183, it becomes way more intriguing. And that's where it's like, you got to remember, do you take the injury risk or do you take the other injury risk in Donaldson? That's tough because I really like Donaldson because, you know, the skills are there, but they, that calf likes to linger. We had one good year. He stayed healthy for one year and got paid. That's what he did. God, I'm, I'm frustrated because I'm such a, I'm su- I'm such a uh, Donaldson guy. But the last bit of news here, we had a couple players posted for MLB teams. We had oh, – I'm going to mess these names up, so excuse me if I do. Or correct me, please, Frank. Maybe you have a better idea. But Tomoyuki Sugano, uh, he bounced back with a 1.97 ERA and 131 to 25 K to walk ratio over 137 innings last year. And Ha-Sung Kim, did I say that right? Because I know he's – Well, he's definitely like the big name guy coming over. Only 25 years old. Just hit for a uh, 310 batting average, 402 OBP, and a 530 slugging with 28 home runs and 21 stolen bases over 128 games last year. He's currently going as the 20th shortstop at one at 210th overall on average per the NFBC. The pitcher, he's going like outside the top 500, so he's a free like dart throw if you want to throw him on your bench. But this is the guy that's just so intriguing. I know he's kind of a smaller dude, too. So I'm wondering what your thoughts and expectations are on Kim and if you like him at this price right now. I don't mind him at this price just because we're looking for steals anywhere that we could get him. And he was a power-speed combination in the KBO last year for the Kiwoman Heroes. So Ha-Seong Kim, a 306 batting average, 30 homers, 23 steals, a 921 OPS. And he's just 25 years old, so he is in the prime of his career. 
I don't mind. Like at that point, you're probably getting him as your middle infielder, not your starting shortstop. Yeah, I'll take a shot there. I think there's a chance he can put up 15, 15 in his first season. Uh, he had a really good plate discipline in the KBO as well. Not going to hit 300. Maybe it's like 260, 270, whatever it might be. But definitely interested. Um, and another name going right around him too, Andres Jimenez. That just range in general, targeting those two guys as like power speed combinations. Not that Jimenez will give you much, maybe 8 to 10 home runs, but probably more like 20 steals if he has an everyday spot with the Mets or if they trade him somewhere else, Cleveland, for example, if that happens. Um, I, I think that that's something he can realistically do. So I like targeting those two guys in that range as middle infielders. I am curious to see where Kim lands. That's going to be, I don't know if it's going to make much of a difference in his price, but you got to think like these, I've noticed a lot of these guys come over from Asia and they usually end up on the West coast. You know, Seattle gets them. You see a lot go to the angels lately, uh, the Dodgers. So I'm wondering if he, they stick to the West coast narrative here. I know he's kind of linked to a bunch of teams, but maybe the Padres make a move, but they don't really need that position. I don't know. But it's I, saw, interesting. I saw a prediction today of uh, the Oakland A's, which would make sense too on the West coast. West coast. But I would love that. Are you kidding me? And it's funny because these players come over and there's a cap to them. So, and their team gets part of it. And that makes sense for the Oakland A's to kind of play it cheap, but go for the ceiling play, man. And I would love that fit for them. But at the same time, I would, I would hate for the power, but I think the speed would play. It just, does that 21, does that 28 home runs trans, translate to maybe closer to 17, 18 here with the bigger ballpark and all that? That's where I get kind of tough. Cause I mean, that's a big drop off, but. Different, you know, new pitching has to adapt to a bigger ballpark, home ballpark, or I think I'm assuming it's a bigger ballpark. I feel like that ballpark it would be big no matter where the game is played. But I don't know. I'm looking maybe closer to 20 home runs. Either way, it would still be a solid player. And you would think maybe he leads off because Simeon is gone too. Hmm. Yeah, roster resource has Ramon Laureano there leading off right now, and I don't know that that makes the most sense. So based on uh, Kim's plate discipline that he proved uh, in that he showed in the KBO. There's at least a chance if he went to Oakland that he would lead off. That's so interesting. So interesting. I'm just I'm just staring at his name on the on the sheet right now. I'm like, man, maybe I need to bump him up my rankings. I haven't made the shortstop yet, but something tells me I'll be a little more aggressive. Just taking the shot because people are so quick to take a shot on a rookie. You know, like we've seen Vlad year after year be a top 75 pick on average, probably usually close to top 50. We saw, I think the year Cunha came up was he was a top 10 round pick, top eight round pick. Put him that puts him around what pick 100 anywhere between one to 120. And Kim is over here, in all intents and purposes, has a similar, you know, what I would call a minor league track record. I'm saying that in quotes because he played somewhere else. But he's coming over at that age with a really good track record, but without the price of these other guys. Mm -hmm. So he's intriguing to me because he offers a similar upside as like a decent, you know, a decent to high end rate, like a Kellenic. We think we hope Kellenic puts up these numbers, but Kellenic's going, what, probably on average, I don't know, 50 picks sooner, roughly? Yeah. And so I'm not, I'm not going to compare the KBO and the minor leagues because I just, no. I have no idea how similar they are, but just imagine if Kim did this at either double A or triple A in the minors and he, we knew he had an everyday starting spot to begin the season on whatever team, he would probably be like a top 100 pick. And I forgot who it was. There is an analyst out there that's very, very familiar with the um, Asian leagues and all that. And I'm not sure. I, again, I don't want to speak. I just, I feel like the KBO was, was um, compared to like double A AA or triple A or in between those levels, like right around there is what I recall. I could be wrong. Cause someone actually, I remember seeing a tweet a while ago about it or an article about how it was pretty much broken down in terms of levels of play. So 
take that for what it's worth. I could be way wrong. So if I am, I apologize, but I swear I recall that being that area, but we know there's some good talent over there in the KBO too. We we have some, we have some MLB guys that went over there. So, you know, the talent's solid regardless of, like you said, top hundred pick and you're getting this, you're getting take, you're getting to take a chance on a guy like that a hundred picks after that. So we don't need to harp on that too much. It is time to dive into our early round perceived values uh, inside the top 150. I, I kind of wanted to go within the top 150 or so of the, of the NFBC ADP. We each chose five players. I do not know who you have. You do not know who I have. So we might line up on a couple of players, which will make this really easy, but maybe we'll disagree, which is always fun. So you are the guest, Frank. You have to set the table with your first uh, value. So, Mike, would you like me to start with the higher drafted player, the lower drafted player? Hmm. I was going to uh, – let's start with the higher drafted player. Let's just go from high to low. All right, so the highest drafted player that I have on this list is Matt Olson, who is being drafted at 87.7 uh, according to NFBC ADP. And Olsen, like many hitters that you are getting at a discount – in for 2021 drafts, just had a dreadful 2020 season where he hit 195. Uh, the BABIP was 227, which is much lower than his career mark of 277. He really just struck out a ton, and he was extremely unlucky in terms of BABIP. And I was banging the table last year, uh, heading into 2020 drafts for, you know, why would you draft P uh, Pete Alonzo if you can get Matt Olson later in drafts? And I thought that I was going to be on Pete Alonzo entering this. Uh, I thought we were going to get him at a discount, right? Pete Alonzo still going at pick 60. And you're getting Olsen you know, 25 to 30 picks later. And I really don't think that they are that dissimilar. I think Olsen, 240 to 250 hitter, 35 to 40 home runs. You look at his last 162 games, 250 batting average, 43 homers, 121 ribbies. Uh, and he also had some really weird splits this year where he was awesome at home. He had a 919 OPS in Oco and a 558 on the road. Usually those have always been reversed. So just a super weird season for Olsen. Statcast numbers are still great. 92.3 mile per hour average exit velocity light, right in line with his career. So uh, first base, not a great position, but you can get him in those middle rounds as a power bat. He'll hurt your batting average a little bit. Uh, but Matt Olsen is a guy that I'll be targeting. Matt Olson, you spoke to my heart with that one, man. Um, I was I lost a couple of bets on him because he just could not hit for a better batting average. And I actually one of my bets was Matt Olson over Pilonzo, and my ranks actually you know dictated that and everything. So I was very much behind that the whole time, and I was wrong. So I admitted to that, but it was because of the batting average. And Pilonzo had that like one really strong week to finish out the year. But another encouraging thing for Matt Olson I found while looking at him recently was uh, and he's not on my list. So I just happened to have notes on him because I again I've been doing my early player write ups and he posted his lowest woba against the shift since 2016 this year. And if you look at it, he's actually had a woba against the shift over 350 each of the last three years prior to 2020. So if you're looking at a guy who <laughs> he's due to regress positively against the shift, and that's where he struggled mightily. There's another reason to believe that he should have that positive regression you were mentioning. So I'm really with you on Matt Olson. I just you started lower than I did, so I'm going to go high. I I got to I got to start. I, gotta, I was looking all through the draft, and there's a guy that just makes no sense to me going at about pick 50 is Starling Marte. I don't understand it. He's a guy that we saw. Who, which analyst was it that took him? I think it was um, as early as 13th overall or early in the second round last year. It was a, um, oh, man, Masters ball. Please help me out here. Oh, Todd Zola. Todd Zola, thank you. Jeez, I can't believe How did I forget his name? I remembered his product. <laughs> Masters ball. Todd Zola took uh, Starling Marte. I believe it was late first, early second in a draft, and it was kind of a big deal. Everyone was talking about it. 
We're seeing this guy slip for no reason. He went to Miami. He's still going to be leading off or batting top two. You look at, you look at him over a full season. He put up six home runs, 10 stolen bases. The walk rate was the same as 2019, 2018. The K rate's still the same. The BABIP's still the same. He still hit for good batting average, 281. He hasn't hit for under 275 since literally 2012. So you know you're getting a five-category producer. The home runs might take a little bit of a hit in Marlins Park, but not enough to where you should be fading him. And it makes, again, it just makes no sense. Just looking at the basics, it makes no sense. He's the same player. Sure, he's a little older now. What is he entering? You know, he's, he's going to be 32, so he's going to be entering his age 32 season. You know you're not going to get 150 games out of him, but he has given you 130 or better, or sorry, 129 or better in pretty much every year except for 2017. So, you, yeah, that's built into the price for me at that point, and I hate taking guys who have issues with injury, but you're talking about something that's such a tough commodity and speed to come by. Sterling Marte gives you that, and he's, again, there's a discount for no reason because he produced this year, and you're getting him what? on average 30 picks cheaper than he was in 2019 or 2020, excuse me, for no reason. That's where I'm at. I don't understand that. There makes no sense there and why he's dropping off so much. Yeah. And there's so many players like that too. A lot of the names that I'm going to mention on this list too, it's just people are reacting too much to the 2020 season. Guys, this was a 60 game season. And I, I wrote about this over at CBSports.com. If we had to rank players for the 2020 season after the first 60 games of 2019, where would you have had Jose Ramirez? Where would you have had you Darvish? I mean, those guys, the first 60 games that they played in 2019 were terrible. And then look how they finish out the rest of the season. So I'm not saying for sure that that would have happened for every player that was struggling. And it's not even like Starling Marte was struggling. You're just getting him at a discount for reasons no reason. I don't know. So Steamer still hasn't projected for a 20, uh, for 2020, uh, 20 homers, 22 steals, close to a 270 batting average. So... I don't understand the batting average because you I, literally, if you look at his history, he's never hit for 268 except for, again, 2020, 2012. And that was a 47-game sample in his rookie year. Like, he's never hit below 270, and yet they project him for under 270. I don't understand it. I know when, when he went over the Marlins, I think he did struggle a little bit in terms of batting average, if I remember correctly. But I'm not concerned about that over a long term, over a full season at all. We know who he is. The speed is still there. He's going to have, and the Babbitt is, he's not even being carried by Babbitt over the last three years or so. I don't know. I don't know. Again, it just, for me, it just makes no sense. Like you said, like, I, I know people got moved up and I understand that, but there was no reason to move him down. And, and when, again, speed being the commodity it is, why is Marte taking this hit? Whatever, I'll take the price. I don't know why I'm over here trying to sell it. I, you know, I shouldn't sell it. I should just keep it for myself because, honestly, <laughs> he'll be on majority of my teams because I feel like he's a third-round value and you're getting him in the fourth or fifth, depending on the size of your league. Yeah. It's, look, we're in agreement there so far. Uh, two for two in agreement. But, Let's yeah, go. yeah, look, Marte is uh, – he's. One of the values I'm looking at so far as well. So, so ru- ruin it. Let's let's try to let's try to argue here. Who's your next guy? All right. So this is a polarizing one, and it is Austin Meadows, who I have at 90.6, and I actually have him on all three teams that I have drafted thus far. I am just completely throwing 2020 out the window for Austin Meadows. He was diagnosed with COVID like right as the season started. He missed the first couple of weeks of the season because of that. Once he returned, he was diagnosed with an oblique strain, and he was trying to play through that in the postseason. People were looking at him benched against lefties in the postseason as well, uh, whereas lefties you know, haven't really been an issue for him this point to, to this point in his major league career. He had an 837 OPS against lefties in 2019. He had a 921 OPS against lefties in 2018 in the majors. So 
I don't see any worry over him struggling against lefties. I understand people worry about the Tampa Bay Rays, but I am not one of those people. And I think that his 2019 was legit. It was backed up by a lot of StatCast data as well, uh, but it was really just a weird season for Austin Meadows, one that I am giving him a pass for. And you, A similar situation to Starling Marte. You had to draft Austin Meadows within the first three or four rounds last year, and now you're getting him at pick 90? Give it to me. No, yeah, I, I hear you, and that's the funny part, though. But see, again, it goes back to what did Marte do to deserve the fall? At least Meadows struggled. At least I can understand. He did. He did yeah. At least I can understand the fall, but I don't understand the fall from Marte. It doesn't matter. But Meadows, we talked about this, and right now, Randy Rosarena is going about 40 picks higher. Would you? But regardless, even if they're going in the same area, you would still rather have Meadows, correct? Uh, yeah, I have Meadows ranked higher than uh, Randy Rosarena at this point. Uh, but there are like there are some people that have Austin Meadows outside their top thirty outfielders, and that's why like if you just don't trust the player, I was talking with Scott White about this on the Fantasy Baseball Today podcast, and he just said, "Look, I don't really trust what Austin Meadows did in in 2019. I just don't think that that's the player who he really is. And you know maybe he was helped out by the juice ball, whatever it might be. But yeah, I'm looking at that 2019 season, and his XBA was 285, his X slug was 553, the exit velocity over 90 miles per hour." Everything that Meadows did looked pretty legit. So can he get back to being um, 25 home run, 10 to 12 steals with solid counting stats in a sneaky lineup? I guess Tampa Bay is like sneaky every single season. <laughs> yeah, I think that's I think that's all doable for Austin Meadows. Well, it's funny because the next guy on my list, because I'm not going to argue with you about Meadows, I think I find him very intriguing. But it's a problem because I usually have to pick between him and there's two other guys on my list going in that range. And another guy is Yoan Moncada at pick 87. It's kind of right there. And he's the same exact thing. And Moncada, he's a guy that, again, COVID, he actually openly discussed not feeling the same since having COVID. And it was a, quote, daily battle to find energy and strength. This is a guy that was coming off his breakout campaign. And the strikeouts were an issue, but it makes no sense to me because he actually had a career-best O-swing percentage last year in 2020. He also had a career-best swinging strike rate. So the, the and that just I'm surprised that doesn't correlate to me with with strikeouts. And then you look at his contact rates, both of which were career best. The Z contact, well, sorry, overall contact and Z contact rates were career best. His O contact rate was not, but he also swung less outside the zone. So it's kind of a little bit of give and take. My point is with him is that I think there's a, I think there's better days ahead. The problem is is now we talk about the Eaton news. I liked Mankata to kind of fight for that two spot. Like, I thought he was going to win it back again the two hole. Now you're probably looking at around that sixth spot, which I know he batted at at times last year because of one reason or another, usually because of struggles. I am concerned about the steals because I know Tommy LaRusso wasn't big on stealing bases back when he was a manager anyway. So I'm wondering how that's going to affect the lineup as a whole with stolen bases. But regardless, you're looking at a guy you can get where, again, he was like roughly a fifth-round pick last year, if I remember correctly, give or take. And now you're getting him closer to that seventh, eighth round, and there's that discount there. But the upside's still there in a great lineup. And even though he's falling down the lineup a little bit, he's still going to be behind such great hitters that he should have plenty of RBI opportunities. This is one of those lineups where you attack, the, the you just want a part of it because it's going to be good up and down. So Yomankata going where he's going with – I'm what I expect to be a bounce back year. And we saw some good things, even though it was a bad year overall, we saw that growth in the plate discipline a little bit that can translate to a better year as a whole as well, or that can translate, bring back the energy and all the others and all the other stuff. I think we get back that 25 home run guy. It's just the steals maybe closer to five. 
Yeah, and I think that you could probably project Meadows and Moncada similarly in terms of what you would expect from them. And it, I'm probably being unfair to Moncada, but he's just 25 years old, and I feel like I have Moncada for fatigue. Like, I've been, yeah. I wanted him to be a thing for so long. I drafted him heading into 2017, heading into 2018. I was finally off him in 2019 when he had his breakout season. <laughs> Uh, and then I was talking people back into him in 2020. So it was like, I've been on Moncada every single year that he let us down. And it really has been every year outside of 2019, which looks like the outlier as of now. He had a 915 OPS in that season. Yeah. Is it had a 950 OPS or less in the other three. So again, he's still super young. Am I counting him out? No, but I just kind of have Moncada fatigue at this point, man. Totally get it because I was actually not the big Amoncada guy. Now I'm more I'm more interested at his price now because you're getting we've seen the potential and we've seen but I think if you're telling me there's a guy that's battling fatigue, battling all these issues with COVID, and he still put up a twelve percent walk rate and still showed, you know, the you know, the, the on base skills, the the improvement in the overall plate discipline, even though the strikeouts don't show that. I think there's better days ahead. Now, could there be – I think there's a happy medium. I don't think he was as good as he showed in 2019, but I don't think he was nearly as bad. I think there's probably something closer to like that 260, 270 batting average potential with some good power and a few steals, and that's very solid where you're able to get him. I'm willing to take a chance on the upside, because like, but you, you're right. 2019 is very, very clearly looking like the outlier, but you mentioned Meadows, and I think Meadows is a very similar argument where the, the breakout season happened, and now, well, which one is he? That's, yeah, no, that, that's <laughs> and, and, and this is what we have to deal with, right? Trying to evaluate players for oh. this season. Some people were affected by COVID differently than others. Like yeah, Freddie free. Freeman went on to win the MVP. And <laughs> like, there's nothing I could say about that, and, and people could bring that up. I have no argument against it. Freddie Freeman was awesome, but, uh, yeah. I mean, everything that we've heard is that some people are affected differently by COVID. Well, I mean, from my personal experience, I have guys at work that um, I've gotten it. And one guy I, I've had literally, okay, one on one, like one set, like one station, one shift had all four other guys got it. One had no symptoms. Two of them had like those mild to moderate, you know, flu-like symptoms. And one guy pretty much got asthma from it. Just to give you an idea of how extreme it was on the same, the same four people got the same strain and it was just four different outcomes. So it's just from my personal experience, it really does affect everyone differently. We don't know how bad these guys had it. We know Freeman's was really bad according to his wife. And it's crazy to see how bad, but he was just, he just, he also is another, another level of talent, period. I didn't, I mean, to say that we saw this coming would, would have been lying, but I, I can't say, I, I, I don't know. I don't want to say I'm not surprised either because I am, but at the same time, the fact that he beat it and was able to still produce at the level he did isn't as surprising for a guy who's kind of as established as he is and knows the game as well as he does. Whereas these guys, these other guys were young or are young coming off their breakout campaign, break campaigns. And now they have to rebuild like their confidence, rebuild everything else. Maybe it's, maybe I'm making excuses. You're right. But it's hard to, and it's hard to quantify, but I don't know. I'm just, I'm, maybe I, I think I'm just making excuses. I want to believe <laughs> that there's more that these guys are just having a harder time adapting to it. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, anyway, who's your number three or who's your third guy that you have on your list? Uh, this could potentially be a polarizing player as well, because I've seen people just say like, no, he's done. He's bad. He's just not a good pitcher. And, and that is, Chris Paddock, who was going at 109.8, and he finished the season with a 4.73 ERA. The XFIP was much better than that, 3.77. Uh, he basically went from being a two-pitch pitcher, fastball, changeup, and yeah, he tries to work in this curveball, but it's not a very good pitch, uh, to being a one-pitch pitcher in 2020. His fastball was very bad. Uh, opponents hit 204 against it in 2019. They hit 308 against his fastball in 2020, and... 
the reason why I'm buying back in on Paddock is a, I just trust the talent. Like I think that he can figure this out and he really struggled with command with his fastball this year. And somebody who's just known for having the command that he does, I think that he can get that back on track. But I also saw a quote from uh, AJ Preller. He said this about Chris Paddock in a press conference following the end of the season quote. He obviously has a great changeup in developing and breaking pitches, but the fastball command is the biggest thing. And we've talked about getting the fastball back to the dominant pitch that it's been for him in the past and try to figure out why it wasn't quite that this year. And in that same article that I read, um, they talked about how they were able to get to Nelson Lamette's fastball on track, where basically they did vice versa. Like Lamette's fastball struggled in 2019, and then it was amazing in 2020, improving its spin rate and command. And I think that if this uh, coaching staff can do that with Denelson Lamette, I think that they can get Chris Paddock back on track as well. So uh, I've wound up with him on, I believe, two out of three teams so far. This is a guy that was being drafted inside the top 50. Now you're getting him outside the top 100. I'm very torn on Paddock. I, there's a lot of people I respect in this industry on opposite sides of him completely. My big thing with him is that fastball you mentioned, if you actually go look at his pitch movements, he, he developed, he was throwing a cutter this year. The fastball started taking a cutter movement, which is what made it so hittable from my understanding. So if he can get the fastball back to rise, because it had it lacked the rise it had last year, and it, like I said, it was moving more horizontally than vertically pretty much giving you no difference different it didn't differentiate at all from the cutter then if, that, if that's the case but if he drops say he drops the cutter tries developing the curveball or developing anything or even if, he, if, even if he's just a two-pitch pitcher give me five innings of a two-pitch pitcher with his potential over a guy with like you know a third don't i don't want him to force a third pitch and struggle i, I but i'm so torn like i'm not anti-paddock i just i think i'm gonna limit my exposure to him in drafts because no. I'm afraid that I'm afraid that he won't completely bounce back or to get or get that third pitch we we need. No, I hear you, man. And it could just be that uh, he came out of the gate right away and he caught hitters off guard and they kind of adjusted to him and they figured him out. Like that is definitely a possibility. I, I understand that risk with Chris Paddock. And if you believe that, then stay away from him. Let me yeah. draft him. And and you know if he's a bust, then uh, then I'll live with it. But I mean, if you're getting him outside the top 100 and in most drafts, I got him as my SP4 in a 15 team league. Like at that point, okay. That feels I'll, like a good bet to take. I'm I'm willing for him to. I'm okay with him being a bust if, if it's at that point in a 15 team league. And I, th- I believe I got him in like the end of round nine. So it just seems very late for someone with uh, Paddock's upside, which I still believe that he does have upside to be going. No, I, I do agree there. That's why I'm torn because I think I believe in the upside. I, I, I believe in what I saw in 2019. I think he can fix what we saw in 2020. But is he going to spend the whole offseason trying to fix it? If so, that's fine because we know he'll be a good pitcher. Not great, but I don't, I don't know. I, I just <laughs> – I want to buy in, but I'm just afraid to because, again, I'm just hearing so many people that I respect on both sides that I'm – it put me on the fence. I'm torn. So I think I'm going to purposely make sure I get him on a few teams. It's all going to depend on my team build at that point. If I need, if, if I can afford to take on the risk, I will. If I build on pitching early and want to take a shot at a guy who we've seen can be an ace, then I'll take a shot on him. But if I'm, but if not, then I'm gonna back off and let someone else take him. It's one of those like, eh, again, I'm, I'm I'm a fence sitter on this one, man. I, I can't even can't even argue one way or the other. But the next guy on my list, which I know you're not a huge fan of, at least I don't recall you being a huge fan of, because I know you were kind of wary of him, because I've brought him up on the CBS podcast, so I'm bringing up round two, Cattell Marte, the other Marte. I can't quit this guy, man. And a couple, a fun little stat I shared with you off the air before we started was um, after returning from the injury. Let me actually start with before he went before he went on the IL. His 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 exit velocity was 86, 88.6 miles per hour. After returning, even though it was a small sample, like five games, his his average exit velocity was ninety four point six miles per hour. 
that right there makes me think that that wrist was really affecting his hitting. And not to mention, among qualified hitters, he was tied for the seventh hardest hit ball in, in 2020 at 115.9 miles per hour, which is, indi- which is an indication of potential power output. And then one, another thing I found was he's a, career two, he's a career 277 hitter versus right-handed pitching. Last year, he only hit 233. All of these suggest that the batting average should, should have even been possibly better. And bad average, batting average wasn't even a problem. But the power potential, people don't want to buy into the fact that he could be a power hitter. I don't think he's a 30-home run guy. I think that was the juice ball mixed with the change in launch angle and everything else we saw in 2019. But I do think he's a mid to upper 20s home run guy. He can give you upwards of 10 steals, if not more. He has the speed to, to do more. It's a matter of opportunity and taking advantage of it. But I think we can, get, I think we can get him back to that 25 to, 30, 25 to 28 home run guy. Seven to ten steals, batting two eighty in the process, and you're getting him at pick eighty nine right now. And he's at and he's second base eligible, which we know second base lacks the like that lacks the star, the stars in that in that position, but it does have some depth. But I think Katoma Ortega can make that leap into that star area again, going going from he could be a second third round pick, he could be a second third round pick again entering twenty twenty two if he bounces back the way I'm expecting. So give me Katoma Marte. I'm not going to quit him. I'm just not. Mike, you're being way too kind to the second base position. It's bad. It's a bad position. And I think it's okay. <laughs> I think I I actually think Steamer's project sometimes Steamer is a little bit too conservative with the projections. And for some players, like if you haven't seen Steamer's projection for Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Mike, just go look it up right now and you'll be completely blown away because I have no idea why they came, how they came up with that. But I actually like now. this projection for Cattell Marte. 287 batting average, 21 homers, 90 runs scored, 79 ribbies, and seven steals. I think that that is very attainable for Cattell Marte, maybe even a few more RBIs. Uh, Maybe he gets to 10 steals as well at a really, really bad position. So I've done a little bit more research since last time we spoke on Fantasy Baseball today, and I I don't mind Cattell Marte. I don't know that I'm going to try and get him on every one of my teams, but I, I will have a few shares for sure because I do like this cost. Yes, and that's what it's all about. It's all about finding these values or perceived values and uh, capitalizing on them. And I looked up the Vlad, the Vlad Junior. thing, and I don't, I don't get, when if you can. Okay, so if you combine his RBIs and runs from the two from the last from 2019 2020, they equal 93 98 essentially is what he's getting for over a full year. Which I know is not fair because he obviously. Actually, it's about 100. That's a little over 160 games. Regardless, I'm just looking. Where's the Where's this power production come from? Where's the stolen bases? Like, how is he protected for three stolen bases when he's stolen one in in over 160 games? I don't understand what's going on here. Steamer saw the pictures, man. Best shape of his life. Guy lost 40 pounds since the start of the baseball season. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. This is like the the, project, the projections they're giving him is like the ceiling of what I'm seeing, and that's if everything turns around and is finally what we hope it to be. It's possible. It's yes. definitely possible. But well, the power is actually like he could hit. He, the dude can hit 40 bombs if he increases launch angle. Honestly, yeah, and it's just his current OPS is 778 in his career. They have him at 892. I mean, that's just a massive jump, over 100 points of OPS. I don't understand. Like, maybe, it's, maybe it's a third-year breakout thing, and you, you brought up the launch angle for Vlad. So I, I, I try to find these co- uh, quotes because I feel like they kind of fly under the radar, things that coaches say and things that players say in general. And I, I found this on The Athletic. Uh, it was from uh, Dante Bichette, who's one of the coaches for the Blue Jays. And he said, 
regarding Guerrero's inability to get the ball in the air, quote, I've tried to get him away from trying to lift the ball because when he lifts the ball, if you understand swing path, you've got to catch it out front on the way up. So it sounds like they're not even trying to have Vladimir Guerrero Jr. increase his launch angle anyway. So I don't know if it's going to happen or not. Yeah, I remember hearing that quote too. And I remember it probably was you who mentioned it on your podcast. But I, I, remember, I remember hearing that quote and it, it blew my mind because it's like, okay, you're trying to get away from that. Why not work with them to get better at, because yes, I'm aware that it's about where you meet the ball. You could sweep it, you could hack upwards all day if you're, if you're behind on it when you're hitting it, it's going to go into the ground. But why not train him to meet the ball earlier so he can't put the ball, like, get, get the ball in the air, man. It's, it's frustrating because the potential's there. I, I routinely comp him to Prince Fielder because a prime Prince Fielder, if you can get that prime Prince Fielder out of Vlad, you're going to be happy. A prime Prince Fielder was, was an amazing fancy asset and a hell of a hitter. Ridiculous. So, I don't know. I'm just thinking. Oh, Prince Field Junior. or Little Prince. Uh, not not Prince. It was Prince Regular Prince. I lied. I'm thinking of his uh, dad. Don't mind me. Mike, there's uh, there's nothing little about Prince Fielder. So. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> but I was thinking of just the, the the I was thinking of Cecil. I was like, wait, Cecil's definitely not Prince Junior Senior. Wait, I'm like all over the place. But yes, neither they guess. Prince Fielder is not a little guy. And he's no junior, that's for sure. But regardless, like I don't know, man. At this point, like he's only twenty. He's entering his year twenty-two season. We've just yet to get a discount on him in drafts. Like every year, like when are we gonna get that discount? He has yet to earn or deserve where he's being drafted, and it's just all upside and potential. But until he shows it, like why are we doing this to ourselves? Yeah, I'll have one share of Vlad, at least one share. Just in case. <laughs> one of these years, it's gonna happen. Is oh, gonna, I agree. Is it gonna happen in twenty twenty? I can't tell you. I can't tell you. Am I willing to find out at pick fifty-eight? Most likely not. That's why it's tough. It's you're you're giving you're putting in so much draft equity, and it's like you're hoping like you have to hope he breaks even. And it, obviously, if he hits, he hits. But oh, he's yet to show any indication of that. And granted, if you you have to combine the two years for it to be kind of a larger sample size, to even say he has a year of experience essentially. But over that one year, he has yet to make any any changes or adapt in any way to kind of be the player we know he can be. I don't know. I'm just obviously very uh, pessimistic with it. I, I believe that it's there. I just, I haven't seen anything that suggests it's going to happen anytime soon. I guess that's my problem. All right. <laughs> this is a tangent time with Mike. Always a good time. So who's your fourth guy? Let's get to this. Yeah. These final two uh, pair them are- together. Our players, I'll throw them together. Um, these final two are players I have routinely uh, talked against the past couple of seasons, and they are both injury prone. And, and typically, I don't, I don't target players like this. But you are getting John Carlos Stanton and Carlos Correa just at what I consider great values, great costs early here in the off season. Uh, let me just paint this picture for you. John Carlos Stanton played 18 of 162 games in 2019, and then he was drafted last year at 63.6, according to the NFBC ADP. He then played 23 games of 60 in 2020, and now he's going 50 picks later. You're getting him at 117.6, and I have been very critical of Stanton. I have openly said, like, I don't even think he's a good player. And he made changes. It's a small sample size. He only played 23 games. It's 94 plate appearances in, in 2020. But career high, 26.5% line drive rate. Career high, 57% pull rate. I've uh, been very critical of his plate discipline. 23% O swing and 10.5% swinging strike rate were career best. He hit 250 with a 296 expected batting average, 500 slug, 
with a 526 expected slug. And he has struggled against breaking pitches in his career as well. He did only hit 217 uh, in 2020 against breaking pitches, but with a 281 XBA. So I think that he was like starting to figure something out and just he changed his approach this year. And you could tell from like the first couple of weeks of the season, John Carlos Stanton looked like a different player. And the last thing I'll bring up for him is uh, the steamer projection for Aaron Judge is 248, 37 homers, and 88 ribbies. He's being drafted at 53.8. Stanton is projected for 252, 41 homers, 103 RBIs. He's going 60 picks later. So, yeah, I'm a sucker for Stanton, and I'm the same way. I usually avoid injury, and the guy literally is a walking injury. I feel like he's always hurting in his calf or his leg, whatever. The dude's too big for his body. But didn't he lose weight last year too? Wasn't that part of it? Like, I believe he came in lighter, him and Judge. Yep, yep. And, uh, look, I, I've never drafted him before, but if you're telling me I could get him outside the top 110 picks, closer to 120, I saw Vlad Sedler the other day tweet that he got him around 150 in a 15 Give me that. It's like <laughs> – it's crazy. Okay. This is the latest that Stanton has ever gone in his career. The final name that I'll bring, I, I mentioned already, about, mm-hmm. but Carlos Correa is going at 129. And uh, you look at his OPS over the last four seasons, he's been very up and down, 941, 728, 926, 709. If you follow the trends, no, I'm just kidding, but, you know, uh, <laughs> he's shown the upside of being an elite player in the past, and now you're getting him uh, outside the top 120 picks. And he looked ridiculous in the postseason. Really, all the Astros did. He had 362 with six homers and OPS over 1,200 in the postseason. It looked like he figured it out. He's entering a career year. And if you've heard Carlos Correa talk or just have followed this whole situation with the Astros, I really, really don't like him. And (laughs) he just strikes me as a guy who is going to give a little bit more effort in a a contract year, Mike. I just, for some reason, Carlos Correa strikes me as that kind of guy. I will go as far as to say that he is this year's Corey Seager. Ooh, well, it's fine. I will meet you with the big, bold statement. I'll tell you this year's Jose Abreu. It's Anthony Rizzo. And it's because you're getting Anthony Rizzo at about pick 98. And it's a little cheap. It's actually cheaper than Abreu was going last year. Abreu was like around pick 65, 60 60 to 65 to 70-ish. I remember I got a couple shares. But you have Anthony Rizzo this year. And I'm actually, my last two guys are – I'm just going to, they're both first basemen. So Anthony Rizzo and Paul Goldschmidt, I like them. And I was actually very anti Goldschmidt last year. So I'll talk about him in a minute, but Rizzo, he hasn't hit under 280 versus fastballs since 2013. And yet last year he hit 202 against them, but that's with an XBA against fastballs of 278. So, you know, there's right there. He's due to regress against fastballs positively, I should say. Well, then you look at Rizzo's XBA overall it was 44 points higher than his actual batting average in 2020. And, you have all this bad luck going against him. He also has lowest bad bip that he's posted since 2011. It was only 218 this year. So you have a guy who should be giving you a little bit more bad bip luck, uh, should be getting some more bad bip luck, some, some more overall expected batting average luck. He did do something. I guess he maybe was pressing. I don't know because his average launch angle did increase, which increased his pop-up rate, which you don't want to see. But I'm thinking maybe he was just going for it, maybe shooting for the fences a little too much. I think giving if you gave him a full season, I think he would have been the steady Eddie Rizzo that he is. I think he would have given you like close to the 30 home runs, the 90 to 100 RBI, the 90 runs, whatever he gives you. You know, like just, just you know what you're getting with him. I think he bounces back this year. He's only 31. I think he might be 32 entering next year. Give me Rizzo all day at his price right now. Yeah, and just the Babbitt, really. There were a few players that just completely got sunk by Babbitt, and that's something that could fluctuate, actually, in a 60-game sample. So I mentioned it with Matt Olson. Same thing with Anthony Rizzo. He had a 222 – no, he had a 218 Babbitt. He's a career 286. So 
maybe it doesn't get all the way back to that, and maybe he's just getting older, but if he can hit 260, 270 with 25 home runs, you know, maybe uh, 85 runs, 90 RBI, something like that. Like, it's super boring, but at a scarce position where he's going, yeah, if you could just pencil that in, that well, that would be good. That wouldn't work for me. I just call him this year's Jose Abreu. <laughs> I don't <laughs> like think he's going to MVP, Mike. I don't think he's going to MVP. What I was getting at when I called him this year's Jose Abreu was in terms of value for the position. You know, you're getting this guy close to pick 100, and we know he could be a, four, a top four-round pick. We've routinely drafted him in the top three rounds or four rounds over the last few years. And I think even if you get him – I think you can get him back to being close to that guy. And if he does come even close to that at his cost, you're getting that Jose Abreu type of – not type of production, but that type of value where you drafted him late and he produced where you're taking. Because now, look, now that the tides have turned, you have Jose Abreu going in the top three to four rounds and you have and Rizzo falling. So that's where my argument for Rizzo is. It's, it's a lot of it's value-based. There's a lot of just positive regression, signs of positive regression there. And the last guy is Paul is Goldschmidt. I'm, I don't want to read through it all. I might send you this tweet, though, because I think you will find this intriguing. But Goldschmidt appeared to change his approach in 2020, and he reduced his launch angle to 11.7 degrees. But with it, it's like if you go back and look at 2016, back when he was kind of like that 25 home run, the stolen bases were what carried him back then, but he was just a solid 90, 90, so like about 180 combined runs in RBIs with a 25 home run guy. And you go look at like some of the stats, the, like you know, look under the hood. The K rate was pretty much the same as this year. The walk rates, the BABIPs, the batting average, the OBPs, the slugging. If you go look at those numbers from 2016 versus 2020, the same. You go a step further, O swing, Z swing, swing percentage, contact rates, first pitch swing. Every, pretty much he reverted back to his 20, 2016 version. So what scares me is that, yes, the, the power will fall, but he's not selling out for power anymore. He's going to give you a better batting average, mid to upper 20s in home runs, but what, maybe five stolen bases? So you're getting the, the four-category floor at a position. He's a little older. I'm sending you the tweet now so you can get a better idea of what I, of what I found so you'll be able to see the side-by-side in all these stats. But my point is, is you might be able to get this solid four-category guy, a Rizzo-like type of guy and similar price about just going outside, just going outside the top 100. Yeah. I mean the line drive rate, according to fan graphs, 27 and a half percent. was a career high for Goldsmith yes. for someone who has just been like, you know, this elite first baseman for so long, he's tailed off a little bit the past couple of seasons, but I mean, for him to post his best line drive rate at this point, I mean, that does lend itself uh, at least to me of him, you know, doing something better and, and bouncing back in 2020, although it was a shortened season and with the plate discipline, too, 18.6% strikeout rate, best of his career, 16% walk rate, his best since 2015 when he was actually in his prime. So Goldschmidt did do some nice things. I've got to see the Cardinals add to this lineup, Mike, because it is just – I'm yes. worried. It's like they, they got rid of Colton Wong, not that he was great. And I like Dylan Carlson. I think there's some breakout potential there. He flashed a little bit the final week of the season and in the postseason. But they need more. I don't know if it's going to come maybe with one of these non-tenders. They bring in, like – Kyle Schwarber or an Eddie Rosario, maybe even multiple of those guys. I don't know that they're going to go out and like sign some big name. They have to improve this lineup just for the sake of Paul Goldschmidt's counting stats. But I, I do like the changes in approach that I saw in 2020. And that's what I'm getting at. More, my, more or less, like obviously we'll see what they do around him. But you can, pre- I'm, I'm looking at it like this. You can just count on him kind of improving or being or reverting. I think he reverted back more towards that guy, like the the all field more of an all fields approach. I believe it was too. a little bit of everything going for him. 
And yeah, it was at least 30% to all fields last I looked. I mean, again, this tweet might be a little aged. This one's still still, I'm still using it, but uh, it has, but my point is, is a lot of the stuff is just very similar. And if he can be that hitter again, it's not exciting, not flashy, but he could be a Goldilocks. And on that note, <laughs> we're going to call it a night. Frank, thank you so much for joining me. Please, on your way out, let everybody know where they can find you, what you have going on, all that good stuff. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Roto underscore Frank. I've been putting out a weekly article over at CBSSports.com. Just whatever pops to my mind, fantasy baseball related writing in the offseason before we ramp things up in January and you know really start revealing our tiered rankings and just rankings in general. So uh, you can find all my work over at CBSSports.com and you can listen to Fantasy Baseball today. We're currently going three times per week in December. Two times it's me and Scott and we actually have... Uh, Danny Vietti and Will Middlebrooks, former player Will Middlebrook, putting out a podcast each Wednesday in the month of December. So you can find all my work over at CBSSports.com. Yeah, it's a lot of fun, man. Great podcast. I, it's, like I said, it's one of the first I ever listened to. I've, been, I've had the pleasure of being on somehow. I don't mind-blowing. Anyway, appreciate you guys listening as always. And as always, everybody, we appreciate listening, and we'll talk to you soon.